Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back with our coverage of The Transformation of Martin Lake by Jeff Vandermeer. This is our second recap episode, about halfway through the story. This story, well, we're reading it in the 2001 collection called The City of Saints and Mad Men. Though, Glenn, you pointed out last episode that there is a new version of this book called Ambergris, which, or Ambergris, which is, uh, includes this story as well, though not as much of maybe the extra material that's in the city of saints and, and mad men. Yeah. It's a nice omnibus edition that has the, the two novels in addition to this collection, but yeah, not, not the sort of like fun, uh, encyclopedia entries, this like massive bibliography of, uh, totally made up books and, uh, lots of other stuff, the sort of peripheral material that we get at the, uh, the end of city of saints and, and mad men, which, uh, I think is, uh, is totally worth it to track down a used copy to, to get all that stuff. In fact, it would be fun. Uh, you know, I'm envisioning years from now when we've done the other three novellas here, it would be fun to do an episode or I don't know, five <laughs> going through some of that material <laughs> as well. And then talking about the way that all of it all uh, works together. Uh, that would be fun to do. Uh, as you said, Brandon, this is the second recap. So, hey, we've done one episode on this story already, and we are going to do another episode after this. That will be the discussion. Before we get into it, though, we want to remind people about some goals that we have here uh, on the show, on the on the network, that are about us covering some H.P. Lovecraft novellas as bonus series. Uh, the first of these is that uh, we will do At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, this is one of our goals on Patreon. When we get to a certain dollar amount per month on Patreon, we will immediately start production on a series of episodes that will be exclusive to supporters on Patreon. We're really only a handful of new supporters supporters away from hitting that goal. So if you are not a Patreon supporter, but you would like to hear us talk about H.P. Lovecraft's real masterpiece at the Mountains of Madness, it's a real easy way to, to get us to do that. We're so close to it. The other is uh, a review writing goal that we have, which is that we would love to get to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. These reviews are a really important way for us to find new listeners. The number of five-star reviews goes into this algorithm that determines how much we show up when people are searching for things like, hey, does someone ever talk about Jeff Vandermeer on a podcast or Lovecraft and so on? We would love to show up on those searches and those reviews are a real way that that happens. And so if we get to that number of reviews, 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts, we will do a bonus series for everyone on the main show on Lovecraft's real hallmark story, The Call of Cthulhu. If you haven't uh, reviewed us yet on Apple Podcasts in particular or wherever you get your podcasts from, pause the show right now, write us a review, and then come back and listen to the rest of the show. It would help us out a whole lot. Also, if you th you've been thinking about supporting us on Patreon, uh, just do it. <laughs> it helps us out so much. We want to reach these goals. We want to grow the network. Uh, you know, it's just so important to us to have uh, support for the continued growth of the network. And we'd love your support. Well, where we last left off in the transformation of Martin Lake was with Lake waking up from a nightmare that I suggested could be a death instinct or a scene of rebirth, maybe a combination of both, <laughs> uh, where he got his hand 
flayed open and all of his talent kind of symbolically removed. Hey, symbolism's a big deal in this story. The symbolist painters are brought up. Uh, the red and green is everywhere. This is a very dark Christmas tale if you want to read it like that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we'll just mention those things at the top of the show. But we still haven't gotten to the point where Martin Lake actually attends a beheading. We will get to that in this episode. As you said, Brandon, last time we ended with Lake's nightmare about having his brush hand destroyed. So we will pick up with Lake the the next morning, the morning after this nightmare. But first, we have an interlude in Janice Shriek's essay about Lake's work. And this is a description of an element in Lake's painting, Invitation to a Beheading. The scene shows an insect catcher on a street, and then above him in the window of the post office that uh, used to be a mausoleum is a figure who resembles Lake himself. This figure has a knife thrust through the palm of his hand, and behind him is the shadow of a stork-like person, and the stork-like person is the the one who has done the, the thrusting of the knife. In Lake's other hand, uh, this figure has a letter. So... We can see already, right, many of the elements of this picture have shown up in Lake's life. And so I think we can presume that we are going to meet these other elements as we continue. Uh, A stork-like person, perhaps. So we need to be on the lookout for that. Shriek's interjections uh, into this story, the way that Vandermeer kind of weaves in these Shriek these portions of the Shriek biography of Martin Lake or the essay on the invitation to a beheading really provide us with a sense of mystery around what all these elements mean in the story. I mean, Shrieks thinks that they're all symbols or private symbols of Lake's world. We're going to find out that they're, they are, and they're not also, they're very real, but also I think that on a craft level, this is a great way to introduce to us as readers, these different elements that are going to emerge throughout the more conventional narrative that this, uh, the form of this story takes, you know, Shriek of course, can't know all of the things that we know about Martin Lake. We can't know. She can't know about his dream with regards to his hand. She doesn't know about the actual invitation to the beheading and, and, and other things of that nature. But what's so fantastic about this story is how Vandermeer is able to create this sense of building mystery through a work of shoddy criticism. And, <laughs> you know, as, as I pointed out before, he shows us that the truth is stranger than the fiction uh, represented in the critical labor of Janice Shriek. Yeah, the, I mean, the whole thing is just suffused with irony, right? Like Shriek, Shriek does not know that these aren't really symbols. They're just things that have actually happened in Lake's life that he's turning into this painting, though they are also symbols after a fashion. But that's the irony is that we know that and she doesn't. And all of that, all of that is designed really to show us this critic who has this real self-congratulatory tone to to show us that she has no idea what she's talking about. And uh, I have to imagine that this is maybe Vandermeer's attitude to, to critics, to people like us, in fact, I suppose. Yeah, I felt really seen and kind of heard in this, in this, these portions of the story. I, you know, I, we, we try not to do criticism in this way, which is to, you know, look at all the elements of a person's life that can be known in order to make interpretations about their art. And, you know, Vandermeer is pointing out what an absurd endeavor that can actually even become, uh, because interpretation is really, I don't know, part of a, a, a totally different body of work that is 
put in to conversation with other modes of interpretation to kind of say you have the answer based on, you know, your brush with fame or something like that is, is an adventure in missing the point, I think. And, and, and Vandermeer's pointing that out here, but I just want to emphasize here that the more things that we see that come out as elements of the painting that we know have happened in Wake's real life, allows Vandermeer to build in this mystery about, wait, what else is real? What else are we going to figure out that's real? And to me, that's just a, a masterstroke of craftsmanship. Yeah, it sends us into the second half of this novella looking for clues, essentially. And that's a great way to get uh, get buy-in from your readers, right? To make us actively engaged with looking for the other bits of this painting as they're going to show up in the novella. And of course, still also wondering like how literally they're going to do that, right? We don't know necessarily that the others are going to show up literally, though it uh, turns out they are. And so at this point now, we can continue with Lake's narrative. And, and this is another really long section, so we're going to break it in half. The first half is about Lake's attempt to get some of his paintings on display in a gallery. And hey, this is the gallery that is owned by Janice Shriek, whose essay we've also been reading she does already have some of Lake's work up for sale. And in fact, when Lake arrives, there's a customer there showing some interest in one of his paintings. So this scene is really a satire, I think, of the, the whole art world, or at least, you know, our stereotypes of the art world. Shriek wants Lake to go talk with this prospective buyer. And although he does it, he absolutely hates that he has to. The buyer smells like beets. He has no knowledge of art at all. He just has innocuous, totally banal things to say, even though he also says that he wishes he'd become an art critic rather than a businessman. And he also is really just interested in buying something as decoration. He's looking for something to hang in the kitchen next to his wife's needlepoint. And Lake really just cannot stand the lack of appreciation of, of his craft here. He's real rude. He's real dismissive to this guy. But in the end, Shriek is actually pretty happy with Lake's approach to this. She calls it a performance, right? She thinks that he's just playing the role of the arrogant artist who thinks he's a genius, uh, but he's not. He actually is an arrogant artist who thinks he's a genius, or at least thinks he's worked really hard on this and wishes that someone recognized that. Uh, but the painting does not sell. Still, though, it's a start, right? Someone showed some interest and Shriek got to talk Lake up a little bit. Lake shows Shriek uh, his new paintings, and these are studies of his father's hands and also some uh, some insects, right? His father's uh, an insect catcher, but Shriek can't take them, at least not until some of Lake's other work sells. She just doesn't have the space for it, and he hasn't, I, I think, sold any paintings yet, so she's not going to invest that heavily in him. But I really enjoyed this scene. I think there's, there's quite a bit of Easter egging going on here. Uh, for one, we get Lake's inner monologue about Shriek as someone who does not really know what she's talking about regarding his work, but yet when she's trying to sell it, she sounds as if she painted the thing herself, right? Which is exactly how her essay comes off. So we should take all of that, right, with a a grain of salt. Shriek herself, by the way, Shriek is related to the title character of one of these other Ambergris books. We do not need to know anything about that, but it is one of the Easter eggs that's going on here in this story. And then finally, there's a real sense, right, that Vandermeer is not just you know, writing about painting. He's writing about the business of writing as well, right? He, he, he himself perhaps wants to be appreciated for his skill by other practitioners, but ultimately his ability to make rent is totally dependent on people who are just looking for a bit of amusement. And I think this is the, the type of bind that all artists find themselves in, right? The wanting to be really good at your craft, uh, but then also needing to make a living. 
Yeah, this is a really fantastic section. I mean, we'll see Martin Bibble, who was the person who smells like beets, show up a little <laughs> bit later in, in Janice Shriek's uh, own account of the events that went into the painting, uh, the invitation to a beheading. What really jumps out to me about the, you know this early section here is how Van de- Vandermeer is adding more overtly grotesque elements into the story. And this is important to kind of get the tone right as the story goes along. Lake thinks about the this one painting in the gallery that Bibble seems to like, where the artist, he knows the artist, and that the artist stole some earwax from a diva <laughs> in order to create the color in the painting. And this is so like when we think of divas, we really think about something beautiful and like ethereal in that way. Uh, and I think that's how... Vandermeer means it here, but also like in the operatic sense, like maybe a character who is just unbearable, but you know, their talent allows their unbearableness to kind of persist in the art world. And so we're combining something like truly gross, stealing earwax from someone's ear, someone's beautiful, a beautiful person's ear in order to make something else that's kind of iconically beautiful. And it's very strange. So it's this grotesque that makes up the beautiful in Lake's mind here as he's kind of confronting this and seeing kind of the rotten underbelly of all of this stuff that is superficially amazing. You know, the man Bibble smells overwhelmingly like beets and Kind of to cap off the scene when Lake leaves the gallery, he's thinking about a sausage he ate that's greasy and sitting in his gut like another set of intestines. So this is uh, here brilliantly to kind of move the tone into a darker place, the tone of the story, but also to give us Lake's point of view about his sense of disgust, maybe with some of what goes into the art world. And uh, it's just all brilliantly done. But yes, Lake just simply does not want to participate. He doesn't want to be called on to the full level that's demanded of him in order to become a really successful artist. He doesn't want to do the glad handing. The way he treats Bibble, when Bibble says, well, this is actually going to go in our kitchen next to my wife's needlepoint work, Lake is like, well, let me just chop it into eight pieces for you, and you can take the size that works best uh, in that environment. It's just a a really derisive comment about how people use art in the home versus this kind of lofty attitude that – reveals the vanity of the artist in some way that it it belongs in a gallery next to other great works of art, not just to be used and forgotten as a a piece of work in the house, even in the kitchen that is soon going to be covered with, I don't know, the splashings of olive oil and grease (laughs) and things like that. Uh, So, right. it's, it's, It's kind of asking us as readers to also think about where does art belong in the world? Does it belong in a museum? Is there actually anything wrong with Martin Bibble wanting to go to a gallery and spend $400 or so on a piece of art that's just going to be in the house? Where does art belong? Who do artists make art art for? You know, all of this stuff is in here. And then this very personal piece of art that Lake makes that maybe represents a real vision, a real labor of love about his father's hands, which is, you know, a reference to another very famous painting uh, that reminds me kind of of the praying hands, but it has this really weird element to it that represent love to him. His father covered in the insects that he would bring home and uncup his hands and show to his son. So this is like 
you know, if we're looking at the symbol here, the private symbols of Martin Lake's world, this is about the love that his father has for him. Uh, and there's this weird element to the story, not weird in the sense of like genre wise, but maybe uh, it doesn't quite fit with everything else about Lake's relationship with his father, who Lake is afraid to seek his father's acceptance, but also really wants it. And that is a, a thread of the story that gets resolved by the end of the tale. I think when we get to the discussion episode, this scene, although it's comical, it's really just played for laughs here, is actually going to turn out to be really thematically important in a number of ways on this question of what is art for, but then also, look, why do why do we work, right? What does that do for us? And uh, so Lake's father is going to be important there as well. I really like that you've, you've called attention to the fact, Brandon, that there's a lot of grotesqueness around bodies. In this scene, we get the the earwax that goes into making this this paint that's just like the perfect color for this painting, though Shriek doesn't know that. She has no idea what actually goes into the labor of making the art that she tries to sell and writes these uh, painful essays about. Uh, and then, you know, we've got this uh, this beet smell, which is grotesque. And then, yeah, we've got the the greasy sausage uh, disrupting, uh, disrupting Lake's stomach. But there's this real reminder then, right, that we are. We are people with bodies. Our bodies matter. There's materiality to our lives and then also to the things that we make. But I think part of what makes Shriek's essay or her interpretation, right, her attempt to, to have a reading of Lake's paintings in this essay is that for her, there is no materiality. Everything is just the life of the mind and everything, therefore, must be a symbol of something. And the irony is that it's not. All of it is like a real tangible thing, right? There's a real letter. Like really dreamed that his hand was was stabbed, right? And woke up feeling that way, right? These are tangible things. But Shriek is just not living in a world where there is any materiality. It is all this life of the mind. And so she's missing it. And I think that's really important. It is super important. I want to briefly just define what I mean and what we mean when we're talking about grotesque here. It is the emphasis of one characteristic over all others that distorts kind of the balance of what would make something otherwise beautiful, like symmetry or, uh, I don't know, pleasing features, things like that. Th these works that uh, I mentioned in our last episode that are the the paintings of Darcimbaldo, which refers to the Italian 16th century Italian paper, Italian painter who used these like found objects to create portraits of uh, people, you know, like using a gourd to represent a nose. His paintings are extremely beautiful, if odd. But in grotesque art, what you see is the real overemphasizing of one feature that distorts everything else. And so it could be ugly, like that might be an aesthetic of ugliness. Uh, but grotesquerie, specifically refers to that overemphasizing of a feature. So the man smelling of beets, he's just a beet or the earwax in the painting. The painting just becomes, all we think about is the earwax. So Lake is encountering this world increasingly, and it's the perfect point in the story for it as a grotesquerie rather than as a anything else kind of in balance. There's one more thing I want to say about the, this little bit of the scene before we move on, which is simply that we get in Lake's head here. I mean, we're, we're we're totally in Lake's perspective here, but there's a great line when he's dealing with Maxwell Bibble, where we're told that Lake had difficulty not saying Bibble imbibes bottled beets beautifully, which is just this 
amazing alliteration here <laughs> that just seemed like it came out of a Dr. Seuss book. Now, I actually spent a lot of time reading Dr. Seuss books to my my son at this point in our in our lives. Uh, but what I was really grateful here was that this line actually drove out the Dr. Seuss that had been running round and round in my head. And I was really grateful for for the replacement of the earworm there. This line here and some of the wordplay um, earlier in the story that we didn't spend a lot of time with, with the group of friends at the bar, they're like these two moments in the stories where I'm like, okay, maybe Vandermeer had this joke and this line. And then he's like, how do I fit that into a story? And he ended up writing 90 pages to make it seem like it wasn't out of place. <laughs> I want that to be true. I want that to be the writing prompt that led to this. This is really awesome. Sorry. Well, when Lake gets home from this disappointing trip to Shriek's gallery, he tries to get to work on a commission that he has, but his heart is not in it. His heart isn't really in any of the commissions he has. And, and lately, lately, really, he's, he's been finding himself just recreating past work. And it's hard not to think about how this works in writing as well, right? Trying to recreate past successes, but not really enjoying it. And Lake, at this point, he just starts messing around with some oil paints that Raf gave him. Uh, oil is not his usual paint. We've uh, had a mention of acrylics earlier. That seems to be what he really works in. But but it is these oils that he's going to be remembered for. We've gotten that information already. But it, here, Lake is just absentmindedly playing around with the oil paints. And when he stops and, and focuses on what he's done, he's horrified. He, he has subconsciously painted the man from his dream. And we also recognize this figure and also just like the, the general color of the painting. We recognize this from Shriek's essay. This is the first work on what is going to become an invitation to a beheading. But Lake does not have time to really think about the painting now because he has decided once and for all that he is going to follow the instructions on this mysterious letter and he is going to attend the beheading in costume. And fortunately, he still has a frog mask that he wore to last year's Festival of the Freshwater Squid. And the section ends with Lake heading out into the night. Sadly, we are never going to learn any more about the Festival of the Freshwater Squid, no matter how much I beg for it. And I have begged for it a lot. Yeah, it's it's really too bad, but there's so much richness to this story that I can kind of forgive Vandermeer for not writing an <laughs> extensive uh, piece of uh, extensive time in, in kind of the celebrations and riots and car carnivals of, of the city of Ambergris. There are a few kind of things I want to point out here. One, I think it's very important to the timeline of the story that Martin Lake starts this painting or what will become invitation to a beheading prior to this event that is going to kind of define his life. And it'll make it maybe make us wonder whether it was the dream that caused his transformation or maturity as an artist or, or this event. Uh, we also learned that Lake didn't work with oils before now because they were a gift from Rath, who prior to giving him oils, and this is what I mean by uh, the medium, like oil is the medium that makes him famous. So he hasn't been working with it because it was a gift from Rath, who prior to giving him oils, 
uh, gave him some basically disappearing ink where he was working with it and his art began to fade. So he was highly skeptical of any gifts from Raff or to use Raff as a kind of muse of his paintings. But this gift of oil paint from Raff is the meet cute between Lake and Marymount. This is kind of a throwaway sentence. Lake basically throws the oil and it hits a str- at Raff. She ducks and it hits a stranger who happens to be Marymount. So uh, that's the meet cute Lake and Marymount get together after that. And uh, it's a throwaway sentence, but it's really cute. We get the whole kind of romance of their relationship there in that moment. Yeah. If it weren't for the really horrifying thing that is about to happen, this would be a great rom-com. <laughs> this, this story, <laughs> it turns out. But yeah, I love this detail as well, because this is exactly why Lake has been thinking that maybe this invitation is actually just a practical joke. I don't know how far into their social circle this extends. It may just be that Raph loves practical jokes and goes to great lengths to play them on people. And so like, we just get this sense that Lake at least is sort of living in fear of these practical jokes his whole life. And uh, I love it. Yeah. I also want to point out here though. It's not clear until much later that some of the estrangement that Lake feels with his father isn't just because he's an artist. It has to do with his sexual identity as well. And his clinging to Marymount is in a way an attempt to, receive acceptance and love in a way that he doesn't feel like he can from home. Again, I said, all of this is going to be resolved uh, by the end of the story, but it is uh, kind of a, it's kind of the D plot of the story. Everything else that's going on in the story makes it easy to kind of ignore the way that Vandermeer is weaving uh, this homosexual relationship into the story and into the characterization of Lake and who he is as a person. His sense of being an outsider. Yeah, it's actually not really until the last page of the story that we discovered that there is even any possibility that there's a stigma about that in this world, though certainly there still was in the the world in which Vandermeer was writing this story. But it's not overly present in the story. It doesn't show up until the end, but that really colors the way that we can read that part of the story on on a reread, which is, I think, remarkably well done. It's a great mode of, of storytelling here. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I, you know, I was shocked at the end of the story when we see that there was stigma around this because there's no stigma present in the story, uh, especially in that scene with the circle of friends between Lake and Mary Mont- Mont's on again, off again relationship. Well, our next interlude from Janice Shriek is about Lake's painting, The Burning House, which is, well, it's about a burning house, right? It does what it says on the box, I suppose. But inside (laughs) the house, an owl, a stork, and a raven are burning alive. Uh, Shriek describes this as Lake's only painting that is clear fantasy and also suggests that it is about his fear of birds. Uh, Spoiler It's not. Uh, She also explains that there are a lot of allusions to pieces composed by Voss Bender in Lake's paintings, and Lake once said in an interview that he had the highest regard for the composer, though Shriek herself never heard Lake mention him. And all of that, all of that is the the tease that is going to lead us into the next chunk of narrative, which is the, the longest single chunk that we're going to get. So there's quite a bit of foreshadowing here. Right. We've already seen that Lake is entirely indifferent to Fossbender. He's irritated with his presence everywhere, symbolic presence or iconographic presence everywhere in the city. He carries around both 
flags so he won't be hassled by either bender acolytes or bender enemies i suppose and he's says earlier on in the story that he's gone through most of his life without hearing Voss Bender, and he's angry that Bender's death has caused him to start listening to his music now. So this gives us a new sense of mystery, which is how does someone who is so indifferent or even scornful of Voss Bender come to see the man as an inspiration? And also, where does Lake's fear of birds come from? That hasn't come up. Right. We've seen none of that in the character of Martin Lake so far. Well, as I said, this this next section of Lake's narrative is quite long. It's it's 20 pages. And Vandermeer starts us off here by dwelling on Lake's journey through the city. He pays special attention to what the city looks like. And he really lets us experience that through the eyes of a painter here. Uh, and a lot of this really subtly calls back to descriptions of Lake's painting in these shriek interludes. And we should keep in mind that we are witnessing Lake's transformation into a great painter. And although the horror that is awaiting him is the most important part of that, I think this journey here matters too, as well as this you know, accidental playing around with the, the oil paints from Rav. So on this journey here, we see a public square where vendors are selling produce and seafood, often itself arranged into these grotesque faces. The arrangement of the produce and seafood into these faces is really something of an art form. It's actually something that people come to this uh, vendor market uh, for, to look at. We also get a ride in a cab and... The cab also has a sheep in it. So there's a, you know, page and a half of Lake sharing a cab with a sheep. And that's something that's in this story that I did not expect <laughs> when, when we started. But then Lake arrives at the neighborhood he's looking for. It's a, a rundown place with rusted balconies and fire marks on the walls. And many of the walls show human bones protruding from them because in centuries past, it had been the custom for people to be buried in the walls of their homes. This is just a really great, really creepy and, and moody world-building detail there. And speaking of creepy and moody, now a fog descends and, and Lake is lost. He can't see well. He's got a paper map with him, but it's not that helpful. But there's a light ahead and this light turns out to belong to an insect catcher. And the lamp has a, a special lens that insects will stick to. And then the insect catcher, it will replace it. It'll actually go through several of these on a good night, depositing these bug-encrusted lenses into a bag. And we have encountered the idea of an insect catcher before. Uh, this is what Lake's father does, so this has come up a few times already. But there's not been much explanation about what an insect catcher would do, like what they're for, like why that's a thing that exists in this world and totally not in our world. And my understanding, or really my inference of this, was just that it was going to be something like a dog catcher, like a, a public servant dealing with bugs because you know the bugs here are a, a nuisance of some sort. But that is not the case, as we learn here. Insect catchers are doing this so that they can sell the bugs to people as food. They're not like dog catchers at all. They're they're something akin to fishermen, really. And I think that this is one of the best touches of, of Vandermeer's speculative world here. Really enjoyed that. But what really matters here is that this insect catcher is able to get Lake pointed in the right direction. Or <laughs> really what he does is point out that Lake was already where he wanted to be, <laughs> which is another great touch. And this section ends with the insect catcher shambling into the fog, leaving Lake alone and in the dark. And I just loved this whole section, this journey section here. I thought this was spectacular world building, also establishing this ominous mood for the horror that is coming up. But I also feel really certain that if 
anyone today sent this to a magazine, even a magazine that often publishes novellas of this length, I think if you sent this off to a magazine, you would get told to cut a lot of this part of the story so that we can get to the action more quickly. And I think that would be a huge mistake. It would be a massive mistake because what this part of the story does, this pause uh, of Lake wandering around lost in the city in the fog before we get to the major event of the story, what it does is it fully introduces the city itself as a character in the story. It's almost a secondary antagonist of Martin Lakes. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit in the discussion. But all of these things that happen to Lake on this journey essentially act as obstacles to Lake's kind of final moment of transformation. And whether that makes, I guess, the city an antagonist is is up for (laughs) debate. But I think it is clear that the city is a character in the story. And that's very important, I think, to uh, Vandermeer's ambition in writing this story. It also gives us a sense of the role that coincidence and the synthesis of events play in Martin Lake's transformation and his maturation as an artist, you know, and it suggests maybe a darker picture, a darker, larger picture to this whole event. Uh, Also important in kind of capturing the changing tone of the story as it's coming to its close. This encounter with the father or with the iconography of the father prior to a prior to a life-changing event also is a majorly important coincidence that Lake just cannot escape his past, his father's role in his life. The way that his father fed the family was through inst- insects, but also that it costs life in order to eat, in order to sustain life. And all of these things are in Lake's mind. And so you have these symbols kind of repeating themselves in this weird way right before this kind of major event takes place. And that's certainly playing into Lake's encounter with the thing that will make him the great artist. Yeah, we should probably get to that thing at some some (laughs) point here. So let's do it. Lake finds the house that he's looking for. It's 45 Archmont Lane. It is painted the color of the envelope the invitation came in, and the door knocker is identical to the, the seal, the sort of owl figure. And when he knocks, a voice greets him, and the, the voice implores him to put on his mask. And inside, Lake sees that the man at the door is wearing a stork mask, uh, and indeed greatly resembles a stork. And of course, we've had this image already. We have been primed to be on the lookout for a stork. And Lake makes a joke about storks eating frogs. But the stork tells Lake not to talk, and then ushers him into a red study with pink light. And then he leaves him. There is a six-foot-long box in the middle of the room. It's got decorative handles, but no drawers. There are also globes and maps strewn about. There's a a feeling of artificiality about the whole thing, but also of of wealth. And Lake starts to imagine what he's going to do with the money that he's going to get from this commission. He's going to buy new brushes and new canvases, right? He's going to be able to put that money into his art. And left alone here, Lake begins to hear a strange tapping sound, and the tapping is coming from inside the room. And look, right, you have already figured it out. We've figured it out. Everyone but Lake has figured it out. Everyone but Lake knows that six-foot box with handles 
is a coffin. That, that's, that's what that's called. There's a coffin in the room, and someone is in it and would really rather be out of it. But before Lake can do much of anything about this revelation, the stork returns, and now he's accompanied by, and you have already guessed it, he's accompanied by a raven and an owl. All three men are wearing identical suits, and they are all disguising their voices. They've got cloth or or, or pebbles or something in their mouths, but they've each got a distinctive body type, and hey, maybe that's going to matter later. And this scene, this whole scene is so vivid. It's it's really, really awesome. It's just fantastic. Even as we are going to be introduced to the horror, the owl is clearly in charge, and he explains that Lake is here for a commission, and it is going to be an unusual one. And Lake has no choice, right? Now that he's here, he has to go through with it. And Lake at this point is still thinking in terms of pornography, something that that Raph had suggested to him. And he's uncomfortable with this. So he tries to leave, but the raven blocks his path. And now this guy in the raven mask is holding a shiny knife in his gloved hand. And here's what the owl says now. Simply put, your commission shall be its own reward. We shall not pay you unless you consider allowing you to live payment. Once you have left this house, your life will be as before, except that you shall be a hero, the anonymous citizen of the city who righted a grievous wrong. And Lake asks what specifically they want of him, and the response is is basically straight out of Macbeth. (laughs) Murder, says the (laughs) raven. An execution, says the stork. A beheading, says the owl. And Lake tries to leave again, as I think most of us probably would at this point. He actually tries to leap over the coffin, but the stork and the raven knock him down and they hold him on the floor. The owl explains that if Lake won't do it, they'll kill Lake and get someone else to do what they want of him. And so Lake says, yes, he agrees to murder whoever is in this coffin. And now Lake is instructed to open the coffin. And when he does, he sees a man gagged with a red cloth and with strange symbols carved into his arms. But he recognizes the man. He knows who this is. It's Voss Bender. This whole situation is extremely dark. And (laughs) as you pointed out, it's made more terrifying by the fact that we get no explanation for any of these events, only questions and doubts. Lake begins to wonder if you know, why he was chosen for this. And they're like, were you even chosen? What does that even mean? Which makes us wonder, you know, would someone else have shown up if Lake had not? And then if Lake didn't show up, would he have had the private iconography necessary? You know, all these images, symbols, which have broader meanings, if he had not attended these events, this whole scene feels like a symbolist painting, essentially. But, you know, Then the question arises, do we really need events like this in order to inform our use as our use of symbols and art? You know, seems like a sacrifice is going to take place. Is an occult sacrifice required in order to get to the next level in our own artistic objectives? Is it worth it? I mean, I can only imagine the types of questions that are going to plague Lake for the rest of his (laughs) life uh, after this encounter here. It's especially you know, with Bender, this is the leader of the city who everybody already thinks is dead. And so this is a a massive ethical issue that that Lake is thrown into. And even though Lake has agreed to murder whoever it is that's in this coffin, you know, before he's even opened it, not that that's actually something that should matter, even though he's agreed here because he's under duress, he's actually going to disagree. He's going to change his mind about that a, a few more times here. 
but of course, ultimately, right? I mean, we're not spoiling anything at this point to say ultimately he is going to go through with it. And so this scene really invites us to imagine ourselves in this scene. And, and maybe I'll just continue here. So Lake is stunned to see that this is Voss Bender. He asks why? And and the Macbethiness comes back here again, where we we get each of these bird costume characters saying sort of one thing in answer to the question, a different thing in answer to the question. So the stork says, he did it to himself. He brought everything on himself. And the raven just says, he's no good. And then the owl, he is the very epitome of evil. But yeah, Lake does not want to do this. He doesn't want to murder anyone. That is definitely not what he thought he was walking into when he came here tonight. But the Raven says that Bender is already dead. Everyone knows that Voss Bender is dead, and you cannot really kill someone who is already dead. But that is kind of a, a semantic argument there, and the Owl has a more direct inducement to get Lake to do what they want, to get Lake to kill Voss Bender. And it is this, either kill Bender or we will kill you. And if we kill you, it's going to be very painful. So Lake takes the knife from the raven and he screws himself up to do it. And he thinks of his father in this moment. And although Vandermeer never uses the word disappointment here, uh, this description is suffused with that notion. Just a beautiful bit of writing here. And through his gag, Bender begs Lake to help him. And so now Lake refuses again, even throws the knife on the floor. But the raven gives it back to him and then takes Lake's hand in his own and, and forces him to hold the knife against Bender's throat while the, the stork holds Bender's head still. And the raven forces Lake to make a cut here. And, and so now Bender is bleeding. Uh, the stork and the raven back off at this point, and the owl actually chides them for coming too close to doing violence to Bender themselves. But the owl also says that now it is just a matter of time right? Bender's throat has been cut. So Lake may as well finish Bender off. At this point, it's a, a mercy killing. And still the threat remains, right? He repeats the threat here. If Lake does not kill Bender, they are going to kill Lake. Lake tries again not to kill Bender. He asks him why. Why was he chosen for this? You, you mentioned this bit already, Brandon, right? But the owl simply says, how do you know you're the first person to come here? How do you know that you were even chosen? Which is a great question about what is happening in the background of the story. And I think we should actually take that question up in the discussion. Was Lake chosen for this? But Lake leans in and he looks into Bender's eyes and he wonders what Bender is seeing now, right? What Bender is thinking about or remembering as he's slowly bleeding to death. And Lake hopes that it is something happy. Lake at this point actually sees the raven reflected in Bender's eyes is the, the the raven masked figure is leaning over them and this angers like he whirls around with the knife and tells the raven to back off and then he does it he, he takes the knife to bender's throat and he beheads him and that's the end of the scene yeah, this this section of the story is the real crux of the story right here. I mean, we've talked a little bit about Lake being put into this real ethical bind, and we kind of wonder what drives him there. Like, what drives him to make this decision to even show up to a place that has that's offering him an invitation to a beheading? You know, one thing we haven't mentioned here is that this is the title of a Nabokov novel who's has this analog character named Siren in this book. I'm not familiar enough with that novel to draw any real parallels here. So uh, that's something if you're familiar with it, with both of those works, this work and Invitation to a Beheading, we'd love to hear more about that on the forum. But why is Lake driven to do this? Is it societal issues? Like he needs to make rent? He can't just 
do his artwork in peace because he has some economic burdens put on him, including needing to be able to afford beer to drink with his friends. Does he feel like he needs to go to shake up his own senses of inadequacies as an artist? Like as Glenn, you pointed out, he's let his father down by even becoming an artist in the first place and then not making it big. Is it because he's taking commissions that don't fill him with passion? All of these things, these explanations we might think of, of like the systemic issues or psychological issues, all these other places to put blame on what leads Lake to do this do not hold up in the face of the actual ethical choice, which is Lakes alone. He could choose to die. And then that would be that he wouldn't have done this terrible thing, but he doesn't. He is the one standing kind of alone, making this actual ethical choice. There's nothing and no one to blame but himself. And it's a moment where he is going to have to reveal to himself who he is and what he's made of. Something we get the sense that he's been avoiding with his ironic detachment, his uh, his estrangement from his family, his inability to maintain an intimate relationship with uh, uh, another person. All of this stuff is kind of all of his flaws are about him ig- ignoring what he's really capable of and his inability to make great art is a part of that as well. We already know, though, that he becomes a brilliant artist, but it seems like he was already on the way to that greatness. And it seems to me as though one of the promises that these people make is that he will become great as a result of this. And these people are clearly wealthy, as you pointed out, and that calls to mind the way that taste is made by people in the leisure class, which is often the wealthy class as well. And they're kind of promising, in a sense, as tastemakers, that somebody needs to step into Bender's role as the cultural icon of the city. They just don't want Bender as the political icon of the city. But Lake was already painting something great. We already know that he started this work, Invitation to a Beheading. Yes, it might have turned out differently, but he was on the cusp of greatness with what he started with, with the oils. So it's a real question then to us as readers. It's like, as I said before, was this sacrifice necessary to make Lake great? Or is this the moment that really fuels his his creative engine? And then I wonder kind of if Vandermeer kind of on the bigger level is making a point that all great art comes from trauma. And this is something we'll have to think about in the discussion when we think about the mode that this story is told in, which will hopefully allow us to kind of grasp at all these other things that we've been talking about. Uh, but if not, we'll get to them. So yeah, this this section is really traumatizing. It's insane. And it doesn't just pose questions to Lake, the character. It puts us off balance as readers as well, knowing the timeline of these events of, of Lake on the cusp of greatness already, and then performing this act. It also, as a final note and, and a much more minor note, explains a pathological fear of birds that Martin <laughs> develops. Yeah, it, it's not actually clear that he develops a fear of birds, right? Because Shriek only knows this by thinking about his painting. So the fear that Lake develops is a fear of people dressed as birds, which, to be honest, I think most of us probably have. We might not be aware of it, but probably most of us actually have a real fear <laughs> of that, and rightly rightly so. But I'm glad you brought up the, the ethical dilemma here. That's not what the story 
is about in the sense that we don't get that built up for us. It it, it appears here. It, Vandermeer does narrate this in such a way that, that he invites us to imagine ourselves in this scenario. And of course, every single one of us wants to believe that we're the person who would choose to die rather than to murder in this moment. But I think that studies have really borne out that that's not going to be true, that most of us have a real impulse to want to not die ourselves in a in a situation like this. Vandermeer, I think, also does some work here in making Lake continue to be a sympathetic character by making him not responsible, really, for the, the cut that is actually going to kill Bender at all. So there's a sense here, and maybe a, maybe a criticism of actually what Vandermeer has done here of sort of having his cake and eating it too with Lake, sort of sending him through this moral dilemma, making a choice that we find distasteful or uncomfortable or wish that he hadn't made, but then also realizing that he that the outcome for Voss Bender was going to be the same no matter his choice. Uh, that might be a little weak there, but it is also a way to for Vandermeer to get back to the the real themes that are going on here to make this the the weird element. Something else I want to point out or or maybe just suggest, uh, Brandon, is we've already had a clear parallel between Voss Bender and Christ in the sense that it's been three days since his death. That's just a, a, a heavy number. That number is heavy with significance. Anytime you get three days and it's around a death and maybe someone's not actually dead, right? You've got to be thinking about Christ. But here we also get Lake denying right? Three times, that's important, right? Saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Some of this even calls to mind, right? The, the he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. There is also a sense of betrayal here. There's the, the thinking about a father in this death scene, right? So there's a lot of images that are kind of like halfway to the end scenes of the, the gospels, right? The, the, the death of Christ, the passion of Christ here. It's not a one for one. It's not all the way there, but there's a lot of suggestiveness of that though. Also, there's a lot of Macbeth here. It's not just like these characters kind of come off as the three witches, but you know, is this a dagger I see before me and all of that, that which, you know, that's also about a betrayal, killing a father figure and so on. So this is kind of the weird fantasy mashup of Macbeth and the gospels, which uh, was not, you know, advertised in the title of the story. No, I think how it really functions, though, in the context of the story is through this mode of uh, symbolism, is is thinking of this event as a symbolist painting that is incorporating the, you know, Oniaric, like the dream imagery, the common mythology in America uh, though Christianity is also a faith that also has a robust mythology around it. Um, and using that to kind of really evoke the emotional context, the dream context, the symbolic context of this event, while not needing to make it analogous to it. It's not an analog. It's not a metaphor. It is weightier because of the strength of the symbols that Vandermeer has chosen to include in this moment. And so he's he's actually pulling on the theory behind the school of uh, the symbolists in order to kind of add some heft to this moment in the story. 
There's still a lot to chew on with this scene. We're going to take up a lot of these topics again in the discussion. So we'll, we'll move on towards the, the end of the, the, the recap here. There's actually still quite a bit of the story to go, even though we've, we've hit the real climax of, of the plot. But really, this has to be a story as well about how, how Lake is going to deal with the fact that he's gone through this, that he's done this. We will get to that. But of course, we also have to have an interlude here. We have already known that Lake is going to go on to paint a piece called Through His Eyes. And now Shriek describes that painting for us. And it is everything that Lake just imagined Bender was experiencing while he himself was beheading the man. Uh, The stork, the raven, the owl, they're all there. Lake is there. The whole room is depicted in this painting, as well as Bender, uh, Bender in the coffin here. But then beyond that, on a massive canvas are depictions of everything that Lake hoped Bender was thinking about as he died. Shriek then describes for us another painting, uh, an interpretation of Bender's musical piece, Aria for the Brittle Bones of Winter. This is a a lake in winter. There's a full moon above it, though the the full moon only appears as it's reflected in the lake, and the moon bears the face of Bender. And Shriek identifies these two paintings as really making a trilogy with Invitation to a Beheading, and she invites us to consider the common themes and to wonder what Lake was getting at with taking up these these images and these things that might be symbolic. And of course, right, we know, right, we know that this is not an abstraction. Lake has beheaded Bender, and he's now going to go on to to paint it and to paint it over and over again, paint different uh, understandings, different modes of reflecting on what he's done. We know for certain now that Lake is just working out trauma through his heart <laughs> and will kind of continue to do that through his career, though perhaps all he needed was to kind of switch mediums and use oil paint instead of murdering someone. But hey, maybe, maybe he needed both and, and maybe <laughs> the world is better for Lake's art and uh, better for not having Bender in it. Those are those are weak arguments, though. I do like one thing I really like about this section is that Martin Bibble shows up here as a kind of uh, low level art critic, and his uh, he, he comments on Lake's painting here uh, with his usual complaint, which is uh, Lake's paintings are just too big; they, they won't fit next to his wife's and needlepoint. And I just like that kind of return to humor here in in this story. Yeah, there is actually a ton of humor in this story. We've we've talked about it, but I don't think we've really pointed out necessarily quite how funny it is. You and I are, uh, you know, we frequently talk about how actually we don't like funny. This is a theme that has come up on on all the shows that we do together. But I actually really appreciate Vandermeer's humor here. There's just enough and never too much that I I think it actually works really well. It is uh, a technique. It is a thing that I simply have no skill to do. As anyone who listens to this podcast knows, we're just not that funny. (laughs) We're we're just not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we know that Lake is going to at least become a successful and famous painter, though we also know that he's going to die before Janice Shriek. Uh, but certainly when we've last left him, he was not in good shape here. And he leaves this house. He heads out into the night. The fog has lifted at last. At a fountain, he tries to wash his hands, but the blood, it, it, it won't come off some more Macbeth here. He tries again at other stops as he wanders vaguely in the direction of his apartment, uh, not really having that in mind as a destination, but none of it helps, and the stench of the blood just overwhelms him. And like 
wanders. He wanders around until the sun comes up, and then he is faced with the city coming to life. Uh, sandwich vendors, bankers, nannies, all starting their work days. In Lake Curie, he abandons the idea of going home at this point, and instead he goes to the religious quarter, and he thinks about confessing his sin to a priest at the Church of the Seven-Pointed Star, but he also thinks that he shouldn't be forgiven. And so he wanders into a small park, and he's confronted there by an enormous marble head of Voss Bender. And finally, he collapses. He collapses at the, the base of this sculpture, and he remains there until Raph finds him and, and gets him home. And even though he won't tell her anything, she gets him fed, and then she goes out in search of Marymount. And at this point, he's, he's alone in his apartment, and Lake destroys all of his paintings— all of his paintings, that is, except for the studies of his father's hands and the oil painting that he had started just before going to the beheading, which we know, of course, right, is the, the two things that are going to really be the foundation of his artistic greatness, or at least the, the works that are going to show up in his artistic greatness. Exactly. What, what, one thing I really want to point out, maybe the only thing I really want to point out in this section is... Again, the use of like symbols or at least institutions as symbols in the city that Lake tries to seek comfort in. He starts with the underbelly. He goes to a brothel, but he stops there for a while. I, I suppose everyone is is welcome at a brothel and he knows he's not going to go inside. He's not going to seek solace there, but it's no mistake that the brothel is the place where he thinks he can catch his breath. And then Lake goes to the church for answers, but then he, he can't find any solace there either. And he doesn't think that the solution is going to be in confession. And finally, he ends at the bureaucratic district, and there's nothing there for him anyway, except for this uh, new symbolic statue of Voss Bender. The only solace that's offered him, the only answer he gets is from his friend, who kind of lets Lake be a mess for a while until he calms down. And Lake also tries to lash out here at the culture work taking place over Bender. He wonders, you know, how he gets mad at these people like fighting in the street and wonders how representing the views or ideals of a dead person, how can that actually mean something to the person who themselves is dead? Like, why don't these people just do something else? You know, is is that why we imitate others and their values? Is is it just to be recognized by them as good disciples in their lifetime? What does it mean to become an icon or a symbol for something else? Is a kind of a question that Lake is implicitly asking by lashing out in this way. And then finally, what I want to point out here is the reversal of what was comedy in the beginning of this story is Lake's irritation of seeing Bender everywhere. And now... Lake's horror is that Bender is inescapable. He can't escape the visage of Bender. We really call back here to the the scene at the the bar, the the ruby throated calf, which of course we we have come back to that name as definitely a bit of foreshadowing. But when they're at the bar, when when Lake first arrives there, his friends are jeering at the reds and the greens as they run by, taunting them, really engaging with them in a way that's not taking them seriously. And we get a pause there where one of the uh, one of the members of one of these gangs, it really doesn't matter which, clearly has blood on him, wet blood dripping off his hand. And that is the moment where, you know, that's a cue for us to take the level of violence seriously. But we can call back to that here where in that moment, it was 
Lake and his friends realizing they should take that seriously, take this violence, this factional violence seriously as something that is scary and possibly threatening to them. But now, now that Lake has done violence, Lake has killed someone, we can reflect back on that image and think about how it's not simply that this person represents a danger, but represents a moral choice, a terrible moral choice. And and I think this is one of the many ways where this story really really pops, really comes to life on a second read. That bloody hand also is imagery that feeds into Lake's dream that we talked about earlier as well. And so uh, perhaps Vandermeer is also poking at the notion that representing something does not really contend with the reality of it. And that this horrible moral, moral choice that you point to, Glenn, here is really just being used as fuel for creative fire. And is that an ethical thing at all? Does art speak to ethics on any level? Like I said, we're going to be talking a little bit about aesthetics in, in the discussion, but not as much. But these are the places where we can really bring out those senses of the story with Vandermeer's own wrestling with the role of the artist in society. I mean, it's no mistake that Bender, this great artist, this opera composer, is the ruler of the city and that people want to take him down. We are close to being done with the, the recap, and so then we can go have the discussion episode where we will talk more uh, or at more length about these uh, these questions and, and, and themes. But there is still more to do. Uh, the scenes are getting shorter, though, but it is time for another interlude. And this interlude is Shriek trying to understand why Voss Bender is so important to Lake's transformation as a painter. And of course, we know why. Lake just beheaded Voss Bender uh, under duress from three men in bird costumes. But Shriek does not know that, and so she has to come up with an alternative explanation. And for her, painting Bender is all about painting Lake's father. Uh, she connects the studies of the father's hands with the fact that she knows Lake's father didn't want him to become an artist. She connects those two things with the appearance of an insect catcher, uh, and also Bender, in Invitation to a Beheading. Uh, she really has kind of like a, a Freudian reading of Lake's work, uh, a reading in which everything is about a repudiation that he received from his father and then looking to Bender as a new artistic father. And and honestly, I think even if we didn't know this was nonsense, I would still think this was nonsense. This is real terrible criticism. It's real terrible scholarship. It sure is. Yeah. Shriek looking for that deeper meaning regarding archetypal fathers is just utter nonsense. I mean, it's just it wouldn't even be, I think, defensible if we saw the paintings. I don't think that that is a good reading of any of these paintings. It's certainly not what's going on. One thing Shriek does point out here that's kind of a, a fun little shock uh, if you're paying close attention is that Bender also has a pathological fear of birds, and that maybe this is not the first time that something like this has happened where a person has rose to prominence and then demonstrated a fear of birds afterwards. Right. So I'm going to get real suspicious of you if, if this motif starts showing up in your stories, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what birds are called other than birds. So I don't have a naturalistic bone in my body. You've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> You're right. I'm, I'm the one with the, uh, the intense bird feeder and the sun named after a bird. And, oh, man, I, I haven't done anything like this. I promise. 
<laughs> All right. Well, uh, serious business here at the end as we wrap up Lake's narrative, because this is a terrible thing. This is a terrible, traumatic thing that both has happened to him and that he has done. And he, he feels hollowed out. He's, he's barely alive. He spends hours on his balcony. He's just staring at clouds. He doesn't feel anything at this point, and he can't imagine that he ever will again. It's as if he has no soul. But Raph and, and Marymount, they stay with him. They care for him, even when he does not want them to, even when he's throwing tantrums uh, about their presence there. The three of them go to Bender's funeral. It's, it's Lake's idea. He wants to go. He wants to go alone, in fact, but they insist on accompanying him. This funeral is a procession. It's a, it's a parade uh, down Albemuth Boulevard. There's a full orchestra playing. And the parade's been organized by Hoogbottom and Sons. This is one of the important merchant companies of the, the city. Uh, so there's some advertising and so on. And this is, you know, if you've read other stories in this setting, these names mean something to you, but it does not really matter actually to enjoy this story on its own. And what's really important here is that the patriarch of the Hugbotten family, uh, family and business, has his own place in this parade. And he has two men with him. And of course, they seem to like very much like the owl, the stork, and the raven. And Hugbotten is likely to replace Bender as ruler of the city. And so it seems probable that they were the ones who had him murder Bender at 45 Archmont Lane. But still, you know, Lake could, Lake could never prove this. But it does feel like this knowledge matters to Lake. It almost seems as though this is a ritual that's about the control of the city and that H Hogbaden wanted to separate the kind of political and economic control of the city from the artistic movements that were taking place in the city. And I don't know, maybe a question we can ask is why is a merchant a better representative of a city <laughs> than an artist? Um, and, you know, this, I think, has some kind of Hitlerian and Wagnerian vibes to it, right? Like Hitler was an art student. We all know that Wagner was somebody that was appropriated by the Nazis as kind of this emblematic beauty of opera and that the, the combination of this kind of artistic movement and artistic mindset with tyrannical power is a bad combo. And maybe this was a good thing. Um, but it seems as though we're, this city, Ambergris, at least wants to preference, or at least the powers behind the power want to preference a, a merchant in power over a tyrannical artist in power. That's a great connection there. I, I had really been more thinking about Verdi than than Wagner. Verdi's operas in the 19th century Italy got wrapped up in the creation of Italy as a, a nation, as a, as a nation state out of a, a patchwork of uh, many, many independent States, and his music was wrapped up in the the pro nationalism movement. And there, uh, after several of his performances in cities throughout Italy, would be riots, uh, factional violence of the sort that we see the Greens and the Reds uh, performing here. Verdi's name became this silly acronym for Victor Emmanuel, King of Italy. Uh, spoiler: Victor Emmanuel becomes the King of Italy. That's how this actually works out. And so that was the the historical moment that that this was calling to mind for me. But I. I think that your your connection here to, to Wagner in particular, I think, is really important as well. 
So at this point, we have two sections left. We've got one interlude, and then we have a final scene with Lake. So Shriek picks up where we left her. She's wondering if her interpretation of Lake's work is correct. But mostly what we get here is a, a, a precis of Lake's career as a great artist. In addition to his paintings, he would actually go on to design wildly inventive sets for Bender's operas. Uh, he does engravings for the famous Journal of Samuel Tauncher, and he even does commemorative work for Henry Hugbotten, uh, though Shriek calls this last bit disastrous, and that is begging for a story to be written uh, about it, a follow-up story. But in the end, what she says is that Lake rejuvenated Ambergris's cultural life, though from her perspective, Lake himself actually seemed annoyed by this fact. He seemed annoyed to have been thrust into the, the center of uh, this cultural movement, this cultural rejuvenation. And that's what we learn about Lake's life before we get to our final scene. Right. I mean, there's really nothing more to say here than what we've been saying. The powers that be in the city really wanted to separate the cultural life from the economic and bureaucratic and political life of the city. And found that uniting them somehow was a terrible idea. Uh, of course, we know that Lake, if he believed Hogbotten to be behind his uh, murder of Voss Bender, yeah, there's no way he could work for that dude and produce anything good. He's just fulfilling Plato's ideals here, right? Plato didn't want artists to be in charge either. So uh, we should all do what Plato tells us, except we should not. That's a terrible <laughs> idea. Let's be clear. That is not solid advice. Uh, well, all right. We have finally come to the last scene of the book. And really, this is a summary of the next entire year of Lake's life. Lake doesn't paint doesn't go to the bar with his friends, spends a lot of time wandering the religious quarter. He's searching for the scenes of, of his grief, right? He's trying to recreate the, the moment when he wandered into the religious quarter following the murder, following his murder of Voss Bender. But he's also searching for what's, what's described here or labeled here as the dispassionate passion of the city. And six months into this, he even goes back to 45 Archmont Lane, the, the house that had been this one wealthy, affluent, well-maintained house in this in otherwise impoverished neighborhood. The house now is burned. There, there's nothing there except the faint smell of carrion and smoke and a bust of a figure who's important in the, the religious life of Ambergris. And later that same month, so, so following this visit back to 45 Archmont Lane, Lake asks Merrimont to move in with him permanently. And he says yes. And, and the start of this relationship, this committed partnership here, this begins Lake's recovery. And after this, he, he starts to hang out at the ruby-throated calf again with his friends. He takes all of his paintings out of Shriek's gallery. He burns them. His father comes for a, a visit and, and Lake gives him the paintings that he'd done of his hands. And his father seems really touched by this. And this emotional response to Lake's art, this awakens Lake even more. And the, the city itself also calms down during this year. The clash between the greens and the reds in the aftermath of Bender's death, this culminates in a confrontation at the, the Voss Bender Memorial Post Office. This is the place where Lake had received his invitation to the beheading. And this confrontation is fatal for many. But after this, finally, this, this war is over. And then it is spring again. It's a year since the beheading. Lake gets out of bed while Marymount is still sleeping, and he sits down in front of the unfinished painting of the man from his nightmare. He picks up his paintbrush. He picks up a, a tube of moss green paint, and they feel good. They feel familiar to him. And when Marymount wakes up and asks Lake what he's doing, Lake says, and, and I'm quoting here, Lake says with a wry, haunted grin, 
I'm painting. And that's the end of the story. All's well that ends well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. It's nice, you know, we get the closure of the uh, minor arc with Lake's relationship with his father, which we've brought up before, and his father's acceptance of his relationship with Marymount is very important, I think, in, in a subtle way in this story. But yeah, Lake is going to take a while to get over this, as we know. All of his paintings are about this event, including... The painting of the burning house with the with the birds in it. That's 45 Archmont Lane. So, you know, I, I don't want to say too much now because we're going to do a whole discussion episode. But one of the things we're going to be looking at, if not the main thing in our discussion episode, is about the various levels on which this story functions, you know, which will let us know if this is a happy ending. I mean, certainly it's a happy ending for Janet Streak, who finally gets to break out of her maybe art gallery role and become <laughs> a major critic uh, because of her br early brush with fame. But the question is, you know, what does any of this mean? Is this a fable or is this story told in a wholly different mode? Is there an ethical concern we need to worry about or is this story going after something else? So a big part of what we'll be doing is going after meaning when we get into our discussion. Yeah. And I, I don't want to get in the way of the discussion. I don't want to preempt that at all. So I think we're just going to call this one done. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thank you again for listening to us. And we encourage you to join us on our forum at claytemplemedia.com or on our subreddit, Clay Temple Media, to talk about this second half of the transformation of Martin Lake before we get into our discussion. As we said at the top of the show, we would love to be doing some extra series on some great Lovecraft novellas, but we need your help to do that. There are two at work here. One is the novel, really, I guess, At the Mountains of Madness. The other is The Call of Cthulhu, right? Most famous of Lovecraft's stories. If you join us on Patreon, we're so close to hitting the, the crowdfunding goal there that's going to launch us into doing At the Mountains of Madness. And if you want to hear us do a bonus series for everyone that we'd air on the main show here on The Call of Cthulhu, and you have not yet written a review of the show on Apple Podcasts, doing that is what will help get us to that goal as well. We would love to cover these stories. We hope you want us to cover these stories too, and we'll, we'll help us get there. We really appreciate all of the help and support that we get from our listeners. So yeah, next time we will be back with our third episode on this really amazing novella. That's going to be our discussion episode. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.